Well, good morning. I feel like General Douglas MacArthur. I have returned. <laughs> and uh, some things have changed around here since I was here last. We've taken away some walls and put another ones in and moved them around. I was able to give a, have a tour of the, the restrooms, <laughs> which multiplied like the loaves and the fishes. Um, I was pretty impressed with them all except one particular one. Didn't seem to have enough uh, plumbing in it and then realized it was ascending and I was on the second floor. So I'll, there were a lot of new things that are going around here. So um, many things have changed with me. Um, uh, my hair has become less visible. But what happened is since the um, tall grains were getting sparse, I thought I'd just mow the crop closer to the ground. Um, it's also very easy to maintain. Now, I, some things remain to say. I'm still teaching at Cairn University, formula, formula, form, Formerly, Philadelphia Biblical University, formerly Philadelphia College of Bible. Uh, I've taught in three schools and never left the building. Um, if any of you are interested in why the name change and why that name, you just ask me or go, go to the website. But I can assure you uh, the vision and purpose has remained the same. Our vision statement is that Karen University exists to educate students to serve Christ in the church, society, and the world as biblically-minded, well-educated, and professionally competent men and women of character. And um, they're really emphasizing that. Well, I prayed for you this morning, uh, but that's not unusual. I pray for you every Sunday morning, because Sunday morning is my day to pray for churches that have been significant in my life. So I include you in that. So um, if, you, if you have a mailing list, put me on it, an email list. I can be pray even with a little bit more information. If you've been praying for me, thank you. Uh, good things have happened. I did finish my doctorate at Drew University. I did complete my dissertation on Hans Christian Andersen, as I wish to. And, and this is a, could be an hour story in itself, um, I finally produced uh, a recording called The Pen in the Inkwell and Other Sacred Stories by Hans Christian Andersen. So I did the translation, I do all the voices, and Daniel Barta, the composer, wrote original music for all of the stories. Um, Storytelling World Magazine does a yearly competition and this one um, for the, the 2011 on recorded stories. So we were, I was pleased because it, that's a secular organization, but these are quite biblical worldview recordings. So um, praise the Lord. Well, I'm happy to be here. You make me happy. But the more critical question is, would this church make the Apostle Paul happy? I look around, and some of you are answering by facial expressions. Some are sort of going toward, <laughs> some may be leading toward. Most of you are going, I don't know. What kind of church makes the Apostle Paul happy? Well, he told us in Philippians 2, 2, and we'll be in this chapter if you turn in your, your scriptures. He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So a harmonious church makes Paul happy. Now, if you look at this verse, you might notice if you compare different translations, they're rendered a little differently. That's because they're not easy to be precise uh, into English from the Greek. And I don't think it is, there are four parts of this, like be harmonious in this respect, in this respect, in this respect, in this respect, and therefore be harmonious in all respects. Um, some of these are virtually synonymous and at least they're overlapping. And so we sort of be, it's a greater emphasis. Be harmonious in all respects. Be harmonious in all respects. Be harmonious in all respects. It's more like a cherry pie than a pumpkin pie. See, now a pumpkin pie 
is very easy to segment. You know, get a good knife, zip, zip, you take that piece out, and the rest just stay where they're supposed to be. But if you have a juicy cherry pie, when you take out that first piece, what happens? The other ones sort of abandon their part and leap into the, bo the bottom. So it's sort of like this. If you would take one of these out, the other concepts in this verse would fill it in. So it's really an emphasis. We need to be harmonious in all respects. I'll tell you a story about two churches in the same city, but very different churches in Dallas, Texas. After one service concluded, the pastor was standing at the back, and a man shook his hand. And he said, I want to tell you something. I'm Jewish. I don't even know who Jesus is. But if he would do this to people, I'll follow him anywhere. Another occasion, the pastor is leading. A young lady came to speak to him after the church service and says, Pastor, I want to tell you, I started coming here three weeks ago, and I was an atheist. But I have now come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. And it wasn't so much anything convincing that you said, Pastor. It was I couldn't explain how these people got along so well with each other. I said there must be a God and I've come to believe in him. He called it sometimes community evangelism. Just being around members of the body is, was highly influential. Now, another church in Dallas, Texas, there was a split, and one group took another group to court for possession of the property. The court said, we're not going to hear this until the denominational hierarchy has given a decision on the matter. Well, the papers covered this, and it was you know, such a, a shame. To, to our Lord. Well, in one of the investigative reportings, they found out that the church of the, the source of the church split was this. It occurred at a church banquet when a child was given a larger slice of ham than the elder who was sitting next to him. Now, I don't think that was the only cause, but a church that would split over the size of a cold cut has something very wrong with it. So my question is, what kind of church do you want to be? A church that wins people just by them visiting, or a church that splits over the size of a piece of meat. And I think you would like to be that first church and make Paul very happy. Now, can that happen? Because some people say, oh boy, that's not going to happen here. Well, I can assure you that harmony is possible among any group of believers. You can think of it as the church. You can think of it as a Bible study you're involved in. You can think of it as a family where your members are, are Christians, or maybe you're employed in a place that is predominantly, if not exclusively, Christians. It is? Yep. He'll prove it to us in two ways. First, if you look at verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, of the Spirit given by the Spirit or with the Spirit, if any affection and compassion or the ability for passionate emotions and the emotions themselves, so he says, then make my joy complete. So the first thing is, God has given every group of believers the potential for harmonious relationships. Now in the Greek language, when the Greeks said if, you could tell what they thought about it. It could be if this is true and I don't think so. Or if this is true and I believe it to be true. Or if this is true and I don't really know. Well, this, he, Paul writes here saying this is the case where it is if this is true and it is. And so it, it would be legitimate to translate these things as since, since there are these things in there. So the ifs are not iffy. The ifs are certainty. This is not a say what. This is a true debt. So because God has instilled in every group of believers these things of being in Christ and the encouragement that comes in there is having love for him and each other. If a fellowship brought about by the Holy Spirit and with him 
and of any affection and compassion, we can do it because the Lord has placed things in our experiences that will bring this about. I'm using harmony as sort of experiential unity, the word. And I got the idea from my translation that in chapter 4, uh, he urges two women in the church that weren't quite getting along, Utica and Syneche, to live in harmony in the Lord. So I like the word, and I'll use that. So we can have it, because God has given every group of believers a potential for harmonious relationships. Now, another way you can look at it is also verse 13 in the same passage. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Um, he is uh, in our midst and bringing it about. Now, I had a better translation of that for you. Not better, just a different one, and I lost it. Well, anyway, by the International Standard Version of the Scripture, it rendered it very well and says, God is working among you both to desire and to accomplish the things that, are, the things that um, please him. Now, what kind of things please God? Well, if we go in the Old Testament, remember Psalm 131.1, oh, how blessed it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. All right? And remember the Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. One of his requests that was repeated was that he prayed for his disciples and those who would become disciples through his disciples and prayed that they might be one, even as we are one. And then we might say, what made the Apostle Paul happy? Well, that was in verse 2, make my joy complete. Paul had a lot of things that made, the Philippian church had a lot of things that made Paul happy. They were generous in giving. They supported him in his work. He said, you've done so many things to make me happy. Now make it complete by being harmonious in all respects. So here are the apostles reflecting the mind of God. So he's among us working to bring these apart. God is working to produce this <coughs> in us. Oh, here's the verse I wanted. For it's God who is producing in you both the desire and the ability to do what pleases him. Well, I remembered it pretty well. So... How then can we cooperate with God? How then can we take advantage of these resources that he's placed in our midst? How can this harmony be produced? Well, Paul gives us the answer. If you look in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself. And the key word there would be humility. Now, if you look at verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Good. And if you read the following verses, the most attitudinal word that pops up is in verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So I would say this is the biggest idea here is humility produces harmony. Humility produces harmony. If each of us are humble... All of us will be harmonious. If each of us are humble, all will be harmonious. Now, what is humility? That's a good question. What I've found, it is not an easy word to define. I went to Merriam-Webster's Collegian Dictionary, 10th edition, a respected volume for decades. And here's what it says on page 565. Humility, the quality or state of being humble. <laughs> That's a big help. So then I turn to the American Heritage Dictionary of the English Language, page 881, in case you're checking me out. And it says this, dampness, especially of the air. Oh, hold on, excuse me. That's humidity. Um, 
looking up too much, which could fit today, though. Um, the quality or condition of being humble didn't help at all. So then I went to the new shorter Oxford English Dictionary, 4,000 pages. I looked it up, and it said the quality of being humble. So what we're contending is it's not an easy word to define. But that's not the only way you explain something is by definition. In fact, it may not be the best way of doing it. You can explain something by what it excludes. You can also explain it by what it includes. And also, you could give a few examples of it. Well, Paul does all of that in this particular passage. And look at what he does. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. So first he shows what it's the opposite of, what it excludes. It's the opposite of selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is this is what I want, rather than this is what God wants. And you know, it is not always easy to separate those. It needs an abundance of wisdom, because it's very easy to confuse my preference with biblical precepts. There's a lot of problems in churches, because you might prefer a different drummer, you know, or, or a different lighting or something, but it's not a biblical precept, but we get mixed up. This says, this is what I want. So if they aim, name a street after you one day, make sure it's not one way. <laughs> so humility is the opposite of selfish ambition. Secondly, it's the opposite of empty conceit. That's verse as well, verse three. That sort of says what I deserve because of who I am or what I've done. I've been going to this assembly for 40 years. I've given lots of money to the church. And this can leak out. I've seen it. I've seen disruptions. Um, what, what color we should paint the women's restroom? And why is it? I've been going here since we started, you know? Uh, well, that doesn't sound right, did it? <laughs> um, <laughs> I wasn't planning on that. Um, She was going here since it's done. <laughs> or someone says, we should do stucco, not a brick sign, because I've given a lot of money to this church. You get the idea that we do it my way because of what I, who I am and what I've deserved. So if somebody tells you you have a swell head, I mean, <laughs> if somebody tells you you're swell, make sure it's not in the head. <laughs> now you might say, but I'm not conceited. Well, you might be in trouble here. Listen to the words of C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. He says this. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can think, I can tell them the first step. The first step is to realize one is proud. And that's a biggish step, too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. So opposite of selfish ambition, opposite of empty conceit. Next verse, or actually verse 3 at the end. Regard one another as more important than yourself. That's not a bad translation. Some verses render it as better than yourself. Well, it doesn't mean we regard people as more intelligent than us and greater in sports than us or more talented in a way than us. Not better, you know, that way. But better in a sense of giving each other preferential treatment. Um, so when you go to get the flu shot at Walgreens, I said, we have only one left, and there's a more elderly person behind you who's sneezing. Um, <laughs> You might say, give it to him. You know, 
when there's a final piece of pizza at that event, and you'd like it, but somebody else would too, you say, oh, you go have it. You know, the whole, our lives are full of opportunities, right, to give others preferential treatment, which demonstrates humility. One of the big regards we should do this in is motives. Regard others as better than yourselves. Sometimes you see people doing something and they say, I know why they're doing that. Now, you know, you might, why, you might say, I know why they're doing that. That's because that's the reason you be doing that. <laughs> it does happen. So what he's saying is here, can't you regard them as better than yourself? This is the spiritual benefit of the gout. Unless you're sure of another person's motive, give them the highest ones you possibly can. Give, regard them as better than yourself. Also, he says, verse 4, do not merely look out for your own interests, but also the interests of others. Now, it's a little vague in the Greek. Don't look out for your own stuff, but also the stuff of others. So we're sort of filling in what that stuff is. Some people think we should maybe put gifts. Don't just look at your own gifts. Well, God has endowed me with these gifts and talents, and everyone should be noticing. But we should also be considerate of the gifts and the talents that God has given to other people. Or it might be rights. We're not always just considering what I write, my rights, and I get it, but also you have rights too, and, and you should be getting it as well. Many, most translations do it by interests. Not only things that interest you, but also the things that interest the other person. We don't have tunnel vision on or blinders. Um, a French philosopher, Simone Weil, said this, the virtue of humility is nothing more nor less than the power of attention. Meaning, the humble person is able to focus not always on the things that interest them, but be able to focus on the things that are of interest to other people. C.S. Lewis comments on this as well and says this, do not imagine if you meet a really humble man that he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a source of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably, all you think about him is that he seems to be a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. So Paul does well. He tells us, what humility is the opposite of, what it excludes, also what it embraces, giving each other preferential treatment, regarding them as better than yourselves, and focusing on things that are of interest to him. And if we still say, but Paul, can you give us an example? He does. Verse 5, have this attitude, mind, this disposition in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now what follows is a early Christian hymn. Uh, at least most scholars will believe that. Now, we're not sure whether Paul wrote it himself or it was already in existence. So he, it could have been circulating and he puts it in as a quotation. It could be he wrote it while he was writing this letter. He burst in the song. Or maybe he had written it at a previous time and decided to include it because the, the truths worked and what he was trying to admonish. Well, whatever reason is, it's here. It's more obvious in the Greek language because of the rhythm that this language would hold and the length of the, of the sentences. Here's what I've done. Well, I didn't do it, I just found this. There's a translation of the International Standard Version, which isn't probably as familiar, but it is available as a Kindle book and in print on the New Testament, at least at this point in time. What they try to do with many of the songs of the New Testament is render it into poetry in English. 
All right? So it's interesting, the attempt to do so. So I'm going to read you how they, would rend they rendered this uh, passage about the hymn of Jesus Christ. In God's own form existed he, and shared with God equality, deemed nothing needed grasping. Instead poured out in emptiness, a servant's form he did possess, a mortal man becoming. In human form he chose to be, and lived in all humanity, death on a cross obeying. <clears throat> now lifted up by God to heaven, a name above all others given, this matchless name possessing. And so when Jesus' name is called, the knees of every one will fall where'er they are residing. Then every tongue in one accord will say that Jesus Christ is Lord, while God the Father praising. So they, the first readers would have probably heard something to that effect when the letter was being read to them in the church. Well, let's look at, at Christ's examples. Now there's a few problems or difficulties in here about what the apostle means. In verse six, although he exists in the form of God, the form doesn't just mean the outward appearance, it means the underlying reality, the essential nature of a person. Because it says later he was in the form of a servant. He didn't just look like a servant, he was a servant in the underlying reality. And then it says, but he emptied himself. Okay, now that's a different one. It's sometimes called in study the kenosis of Jesus Christ because that's the Greek word that's behind this. What, did, what does that mean, emptied himself? Back in Bible college, my, one of my professors said something that has always made sense. He said, the, the kenosis of Jesus is not the subtraction of divinity, it was the addition of humanity. I said, that makes sense. Now even one of the great hymns in the hymn book, um, And Can It Be, there's a line that says, he emptied himself of all but love. That's not quite true. In fact, if you sing it, one way of fixing it is just put because instead of all but. He emptied himself because of love. Now, how did he empty himself? What does that mean? Well, it's helped us because the participles that modify this sort of explain it. Um, he emptied himself, verse 7, by taking the form of a bondservant and by being made in the likeness of men. This was the essence of his emptying. He didn't regard equality with God in that status and splendor, something to be held onto, but he came down to earth as a human being. And he gave up the independent exercise of some of the attributes he had because he didn't come to his own will but the will of him who sent him. Right? He was a servant. And to become incarnate, there was often that veiling of the glory. Sometimes the disciples caught a vision of it at the Mount of Transfiguration. But to walk among us, there was a veiling of the splendor that he had as God. So he humbled himself, certainly, by becoming human in the first place. And also, as it said, he would die on a cross. Now, if we look at the things we just talked about, we see how Jesus Christ is a great example of humility. If we go back to the earlier verses. Did he act in selfish ambition? Nope. He acted in selfless ambition. Did he act in empty conceit? No. Uh, it certainly wasn't empty. God could not think any higher of himself than he was. And it wasn't empty at all. He, he didn't get what he deserved. He got what we deserved when he went to the cross. He gave us preferential treatment. He died in our place. He took our punishment. He didn't look out for our in, his own interest. He looked out on ours. So even the things Paul enumerated before is perfectly exemplified in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, he, be, he was humble to become a man. He was humble to experience death, and he was humble to experience death on a cross. This was reserved for slaves, criminals, foreigners. It wasn't even to be brought up in polite conversation with the Romans. 
The Roman order, orator Cicero said this, it is the most cruel and hideous of punishments, far be it from the very name of a cross from the body, but even the thoughts, the ears, and the eyes of Roman citizens. Even death on a cross. Back home, I have a, a book that's about 2,000 pages long. It's like great sermon illustrations. Eh, many are great. All right, anyway, in that whole book, you know, if you could find a better example of humility than Jesus, it, there, it's not in there. In my personal library of stories and folklore, I must have hundreds of volumes. There's not a better example of humility in all the pages. And in all the libraries of this world, in all of human history and in all of literature, there's not a better example of humility than the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't illustrate the example by another example because it, it pales in comparison to that. Who so rich ever became so poor? His father owned the cattle on the thousand hills and the wealth in every mine, and yet he was born of a human dad who could only afford the most meager of sacrifices when he was dedicated. Who so high ever became so low? The gutters of glory had more splendor than the palaces of earth, but he wasn't born in a palace, but in a stable, not in a golden cradle, but a feeding trough, and not on satin sheets, but on coarse cloth over straw. Who so strong, the creator and sustainer of the universe, ever became so weak, a helpless human infant? And who so wise, ever became so incoherent that all there could be is babble when the wisdom of the ages was in this young child. Amen for humility. But an example, we couldn't do better than that. Now, as we finish off the song, for this reason also God highly exalted him, verse nine, and bestowed on him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, if you read that, a thought might come through our minds saying, well, that doesn't sound like an example of humility. It sounds like he's being exalted. All right, that's true. But let me say four things about it. This still is tied in to the theme of Paul's song here. He could have just decided to quote the whole thing. And this happened to be the last stanza, which was may have not as relevant, but it was there and he put it in. That we could have excused him for doing that. But also there's a theme that runs through scripture that what happens to the humble, they'll be exalted. What happens to the proud, they will be abased. And that will go through scripture. So that, this fits the theme there. Also, we haven't lost unity here either. Because how many knees are bowing? Everyone. How many tongues are confessing? Everyone. You see, they're synchronized kneeling and harmonious speaking. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, another thing is lurking in here. We haven't left Christ's example of humility, I don't think, either. In Proverbs 27, 21, it says this, The crucible is for silver and the furnace for gold, and a man is tested by his praise. This is agreed to by secular authors. English author Samuel Butler said this, I really do not see much use in exalting the humble and meek. They do not remain humble and meek long when they are exalted. And 800 years before him, Bernard of Clairvaux said this, it is no great thing to be humble when you are brought low, but to be humble when you are praised is a great and rare attainment. So what is Christ facing here? Every knee is bowing. Every tongue's confessing, Jesus Christ is Lord, but not to his glory, 
he says, for you, Father. What an example. You know, it's really difficult when you're being carried off the field in the shoulders of your teammates after scoring the winning point to say, Father, the glory goes to you. Or when we come up in front of the people to receive an award and there's a standing ovation to in your heart sincerely say, to the glory of God, my Father. And so another example of Jesus, uh, of humility, that he can give God the glory even when being praised. Well, English statesman John Selden once said, humility is a virtue all preach, none practice, and yet everyone is content to hear. Well, I hope we're not this morning just content to hear it, but actually to do it. So when you're in a group of believers and it gets divisive or tense, maybe it's in home or in small group or in a church, your place of employment, and think, I wish this group was more together. I wish we had more true unity. A truth might come into your mind that says this, humility produces harmony. Philippians chapter 2. I need to read that again. If each of us were humble, we'd all be harmonious. And then it's time to check it out, to say, am I doing this out of selfish ambition? Do I think I'm somebody or deserve something for myself here? Am I giving others the preferential treatment? Am I looking at only what concerns me, but and I'm neglecting what concerns other people? And what would Jesus do? Am I doing it? Who is the greatest example of humility of all? When I went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, uh, one of my teachers, and actually my thesis reader, was uh, D.A. Carson, where respected and brilliant man. I read about an incident where he was going to interview on video Carl Henry and Kenneth Conser, who are two very influential people in evangelical Christianity. Uh, they both associate with Billy Graham, Christianity Today magazine. One founded and nurtured at Prominent Seminary. The other one was a prolific writer. And he was, they were doing an interview, and he was like the moderator. Um, they, he said they were both about over 80 years of age at this time when he was doing this. And here's what he said. At the end of the discussion, he asked them a question. He said, you two men have been extraordinarily influential for almost half a century. Without wanting, wanting to indulge in flattery, I must say that what is attractive about your ministries is that you have retained integrity. Both of you are strong, yet neither of you is egotistical. You have not succumbed to eccentricity in doctrine, nor to individualistic empire building. In God's grace, what has been instrumental in preserving you in these areas? He said they both sputtered and seemed to be embarrassed. And then one of them ventured in a kind of gentle outrage, like the gentle outrage. How on earth can anyone be arrogant when standing beside the cross? And years before, another hymn writer said, Isaac Watts, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Humility produces harmony.